the number one skill for CEOs today is storytelling. Because what's happened is with all the noise and everything that's going on, it's the narrative that's become much more important than the numbers themselves. Can this leader explain to us in an aspirational way why we should stick with him? Welcome in to another episode of the Professional Profiles podcast that uncovers the time-tested wisdom for the next generation. Join me, a forward-thinking team, as I engage in insightful conversations with industry titans, revealing the invaluable ingredients that pave the way to achieving remarkable success. Welcome to this episode of the Profiles podcast with Richard Bliss. Now working as the CEO at BlissPoint, Richard has had quite the career to get him there. With over 110,000 followers on social media, Richard now teaches some of the top executives and CEOs in Silicon Valley the importance of building an online identity. Oh yeah, and he's an author. The man does it all. In this conversation, Richard and I discuss how to use social media more positively, how to build a digital presence, why leaders need to adapt to our online world, Richard's time talking on CNN, and his time as a Russian spy. Just kidding. Or am I? Please tune into this wonderful episode because you will not want to miss it. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Well, welcome, Mr. Bliss. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Charlie, it's my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out and inviting me onto the show. I'm happy to be here. Of course, I'm looking forward to it. So first off, could you just talk about what it is that you do and what your career has looked like to lead you up to this point in your life? Sure. What I do is I work with a lot of senior leaders, particularly in Silicon Valley. They're CEOs of tech companies, multinational companies, helping them understand how to build a presence online in today's world. For a lot of leaders, uh, it's a challenge because they grew up in a different environment than leadership today, which requires a set of skills. And I help teach them to do that. I also train sales teams, marketing teams, and organizations particularly how LinkedIn works, because it is a fundamentally different uh, algorithm than Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and all of those. And the outcome that's being needed there means that when you're using skills from those other social media platforms, you're actually sabotaging your effects and your reach on LinkedIn. So I teach organizations and companies how to do that to be more effective at talking to their customers. Could you dive into LinkedIn a little bit? I know that you have a large following on LinkedIn. Could you talk about what it is that you talk to your companies and the people that you work with about and that fundamental difference that you just mentioned? Yeah. The fundamental difference is, the, uh, is two, twofold. One is money and two is outcome. Money, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they make their money off of advertising, as we know. It's very clear about that. But LinkedIn, only 20% of their revenue comes from advertising. 20% comes from paying customers now. Those paying customers are using LinkedIn Premium, LinkedIn Sales Navigator, LinkedIn Recruiter. These are business tools used to tap into the data that's inside of LinkedIn to allow companies to more effectively network with each other. Now, I'm guessing, Charlie, that you probably don't use any of those tools, right? LinkedIn Premium, LinkedIn... I do not. So that's okay. You're benefiting, though, from those who are paying for the privilege of using those tools just like if you were to move out of your house and kept your Netflix account for under your parents and still had Netflix, right? Charlie, I got five daughters. Trust me. I know what that feels like to uh, have them not move, to move out of the house. But the idea is, is that you still get to have a positive experience on LinkedIn because those who are paying for the privilege are changing the way that LinkedIn interacts. It's the money. 
The goal of Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter is to entertain and keep you there for as long as possible to drive advertising dollars. That means the algorithm's goal is going to reward your behavior very differently. And that's what I help teach executive salespeople that getting likes on LinkedIn is worthless. Uh, putting links to YouTube videos will actually suppress the reach. LinkedIn only shows your content to 10% of your connections. Uh, and if you have people who are reposting or resharing your content, LinkedIn hides it from 99% of their audience. All of the things we would normally do on Instagram is sabotaging our efforts to reach an audience on LinkedIn because we're using tools that are counterproductive to building legitimate business conversations. So what are the tools to grow your LinkedIn? Well, the tools to grow your LinkedIn, there's really one way to grow your LinkedIn beyond all others. And it's a secret. It's a secret I'm going to share just between you and me, Charlie. Okay. Just be, we, let's not tell anybody. <laughs> Here's the secret on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is going to reward one type of behavior above all else. And that is commenting. So taking the opportunity to comment on other people's conversations will drive a huge number of people to come check out your LinkedIn profile to see who's participating in my conversation. Who is this person participating in a conversation that I found interesting? Here's the difference between the other social media platforms. On LinkedIn, every comment you leave gets put in front of your audience. So let's, let's just have an example. Let's suppose you commented on my post. Your comment is gonna go in front of your audience. Now, traditionally, how do most people comment? great job, way to go, awesome, congrats. Well, that comment has no value. It literally is going to be picked up and put in front of your audience and it's going to say congrats. But if you were to leave a comment on my post, Charlie, that said, Richard, as I listened or as I watched or as I read your podcast or your episode or your book, here's a couple of things I found interesting. Number one, number two, number three. I have a question. As you tried this, what else did you see? Now, that's a comment that's going to show up in my, on my post. Your audience is going to see you asking that question of me. I'm going to respond because you've asked me a question. You've engaged with me. I'm not putting content on LinkedIn, hoping nobody sees it. So you comment, I respond. Well, now my response is going to be put in front of your audience. Your audience is going to see you engaging in a conversation with me. And my audience is going to see me engaging in a conversation with you. You haven't created a post. And yet through your commenting strategy, you've raised your awareness amongst my followers significantly because of that conversation going back and forth. So here's the uh, promise I would make to your audience. If they go and leave three comments a day, you don't have to create new content, just three comments a day. They have to be longer than five words. You have to add to the conversation, not just add a boy. Good job. I agree. That's awesome. Instead, insightful additions, just like the questions you're asking me now, you're going to see hundreds of people immediately begin to check out your LinkedIn profile. Who is this person? They just showed up in my feed because they made a comment on a conversation I'm interested in, or they talked to somebody I was familiar with. This commenting strategy, right? It doesn't work on Instagram. If I saw your Instagram post and I made a comment on it, who's going to see it? Unless somebody else comes and looks it up. But on LinkedIn, it's going to take that comment and push it out to my audience and your network. And so that's incredibly important for that. So I actually didn't jump on LinkedIn until this summer. And as soon as I did, I realized the enormous benefit from it. And I met new people. It allowed me to contact really interesting people. And I know 
coming from being a high school student that so many kids are not utilizing this resource. And I just want to ask you, how important is this for their future? I get this question asked all the time. And so my answer is, when I stand in front of an audience, 50 people, 100 people, however it might be, I ask a raise of hands. How many have a Facebook, Facebook account? You know, a bunch of hands go up. And then I change it. How many don't have a Facebook account? Hands go up. How many don't have a Twitter account, X account, whatever it's called? Hands go up. How many don't have a Threads account? How many don't have a TikTok, Instagram, YouTube account? And multiple hands go up. And then I ask, how many of you don't have a LinkedIn account? Not a single hand goes up. Or if one goes up, everybody looks at that person thinking, what are you doing here? I call it your digital hub. It's the closest thing to real world identity because it's tying us to our work history and it's tying us to things that are important to us that are easy to, to validate or invalidate. If I claim to be a vice president of Microsoft, it's pretty easy for you to figure that out that I'm not. LinkedIn is the closest thing for trust. It's the most trusted platform. So when you reached out to me to be on your show, what did I do? Did I Google you? No. I went to LinkedIn to see, okay, I want to, even though you're in high school, I still went to LinkedIn to see if you had an account so I could learn more about you. It is the single most important place people go. So to your audience, whether they're fellow high school students, college students, or to a wider audience, being able to have a presence where you can have and participate in the conversations that are driving business today is what LinkedIn's all about. It's about, it's not about entertaining. It's not about distracting. I want to go participate in a conversation with the CEO of a company. LinkedIn will let you do that as you've already discovered. And so that's why for future growth, start your LinkedIn account as early as possible. Build it out. Don't use it as a resume. Use it as a place to show your worth and value. And Charlie, you're already doing that. I'm looking out there. What kind of resume are you going to put out there for your work experience? Right? I've worked at Wendy's. Well, I did. I put myself through college working at Wendy's. But Nobody cares about that. What do they care is what I can do for them. And you're doing a great job with your LinkedIn. And so I would encourage your fellow students to do the same. Now, most of my daughters are grown. They're all out of high school of my five daughters. And one of them, they joke that I gave them on their 16th birthday, I gave them a LinkedIn account. Well, it's a bit of a joke, but there's some validity there. Giving them a chance to start participating in the conversations that are happening to the very companies and individuals that they want to go work for in the future or learn from. LinkedIn's opening that door because those folks aren't on TikTok and Instagram, but they are on LinkedIn. So I want to shift away from LinkedIn, but still in your realm of expertise in terms of digital networking versus in-person networking. So you wrote a book, Digital First Leadership. Yep. I would say you're an expert in the realm of digital networking, but I've had other guests talk about the importance of in-person networking. And I'm not saying that you disagree with that, but how do we balance in-person networking and digital networking? And what, are, what is the importance of digital networking now? The reason I wrote the book is because the shift that has happened over, not just since COVID, but even before that, where we meet people for the very first time in the digital world, long before we meet them in the physical world. I just got done talking to a bunch of CEOs last week here in Silicon Valley. And some of them said, I only connect with people who I've met in real life. And I'm like, what does the, what, what is the, why do you have to be in the same space time continuum, physical proximity to each other to justify them getting a connection online? Well, I need to know that, you know, I have to have a relationship. 
And Charlie, you know this, this is the reality of the new world is that we don't rely on our physical interaction with individuals to establish a networking. We rely on the digital interactions. Charlie, I have to tell CEOs this. They're like, I'm busy running a company. I don't, I don't have time to be out there online. Really? Because if you're running a company of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 employees, a lot of those employees probably have never met you in person. Maybe they've heard you on an all hands call or something like that, but they've never. So where are they going to learn about you? And this digital networking is so critically important. And if you want to be in the, to quote, if you want to be in the room where it happens, right? Aaron Burr, what do you want? I want to be in the room where it happens. Well, guess what? LinkedIn is letting you be in the room where it happens. Well, guess what? Every executive, every CEO of any company you're going to work for has a digital presence out there as those individuals. And you have the chance, and you're doing it right now, to go and connect with them, even though where you live might limit you physically of interacting with these people. Think about it. You are now spreading and the, that influence. So the, the importance of your digital networking is critical. And a lot of people simply, when I say a lot of people, I'm talking about a demographic of an older generation that doesn't have the experience and is used to picking up the phone and calling someone. An older generation is struggling with this idea of their digital identity, <laughs> of their identity being shifted online primarily. They still think somehow they have control over that identity and they don't. Let me give you a story here. You, you know who I am, Richard Bliss. You've done some research on me. I used to live in San Diego before I moved to San Jose. So Charlie, if you Google Richard Bliss San Diego, you're going to do that right now. I'm going to tell your audience, they can listen in, they can play along. I'm from Olympia, Washington. I am in the tech industry. I lived in San Diego before I moved here, and I have a brother named John. If you type in Richard Bliss San Diego, you're going to find that the first entry on Google is what? It's a Wikipedia article? It's a Wikipedia article about Richard Bliss from Olympia, Washington, being arrested in Russia as a spy. He's in the tech industry. He lives in San Diego, and his brother John is quoted in the press as saying, my brother is not a spy. It's completely valid Wikipedia entry. It's not fake. Except there are two Richard Blisses from Olympia, Washington, living in San Diego, in the tech industry, with brothers named John. One of them went to Russia and got arrested as a spy. The other one did not. I am the other one. But, but of course, that's what a spy would say, right? My point here, though, is I have been asked numerous times and have failed security background checks because my online identity is stronger than my in-person identity. These people were hiring me. I'm in the office. I'm meeting with the HR department, but I failed the background check. And so now whenever I have to do a background check in my business, I just send them a link to that Wikipedia entry and say, that's not me. And I can send them other links. When I was in the media, I had media people and I was on CNN a couple of times unrelated to this. But the first thing they asked me is, are you that Richard Bliss? No. And so it's so incredibly important today for online networking, identity, controlling our brand and telling our story, which is why it's great that you started off so early with that process. Well, I appreciate that. And just to add and piggyback on what you're talking about, LinkedIn is a blessing, not a curse, right? We have the opportunity now that we've never had to reach millions of people in mm -hmm. every place in the world. And we should see that as an opportunity. And I know the, the younger generation has caught on to this, but some older generations are still hesitant right? and we should see it as an opportunity, but I think social media gets demonized by the Twitters, the Instagrams, the Doom Snapchats, scrolling. the Facebooks. Doom, right. Cause you right. Got, yeah. Leaders today, when I talk to them, there are three myths I have to have them overcome. 
One, that social media, we're putting that in air quotes, social media, mostly I tell them just be on LinkedIn. Don't worry about the other ones, but it takes too much time. Well, because they see their kids, they see, right, just doing nothing but sitting there glued to their phones. But there's, they don't have to, that doesn't have to happen. I help them understand how to be present without having to spend all their time there. Number two is that they perceive, now we're talking about a demographic that's not as comfortable being a digital native. They see that it's all self-promotional. Celebrities, politicians, right? Influencers. Oh, look at me, right? Look at, I've got my Gucci bag and my shoes and I'm standing in front of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, it's a green screen, but know that, right? They see that self-promotion and they're like, look, that is not me. And so I have to help them understand that part of being authentic online is not worrying about that, but just being yourself in so many ways. And then the third one is, this is a shocking one. So many leaders I talk to don't feel they have anything relevant or important to say. And that's crazy because you have gotten into your position of leadership, success for some reason, and you have a story to tell that could inspire others and what they could do to avoid the balls and take advantage of the opportunities. Those three myths are what drives almost every executive I talk to when they hesitate about having their self on, online in any kind of uh, digital presence. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of amazing to think about social media when you think about how much money Meta is putting into it, at Facebook and Instagram, how much money and how many experts, it's just the resources going into captivating your attention. It's just mm-hmm. mind boggling. And it's kind of you against this army. An, an algorithm. Right. It's you against an algorithm and you're going to lose. You're going to lose unless you're aware of how it works, which is why I teach uh, the secrets of hacking the LinkedIn algorithm and why it's such a different outcome that's desired. It's not trying to manipulate your emotions. It's trying to make sure you're connected and continue to pay money for all those people. $11 billion a year are paid to LinkedIn for those tools. And they want to make sure that experience continues to be positive. So yeah, that is an excellent point you're making. So I just want to come back to one of the things that you just said. You were on CNN a couple of times. Could you talk about that experience? (laughs) Well, I'm old. Uh, (laughs) I am. I'm old. And, uh, So many years ago, I was the leading expert in the country on viruses, uh, not COVID viruses, computer viruses. And I was, I was around in the early days of the email, uh, early days of networking, early days of communications back when it was all dial up and way back. And I was working with businesses. I invented a way to prevent people from sending fat files through the email system. Now, the reason that was important is because back then, I use an analogy, the pipes were really, really tiny. They were just phone lines that people would call up and then pass files. Well, once big files started to become popular, dancing elves and Christmas cards and gifts and all of that type of thing. It's pronounced gifts, by the way, not gifs. (laughs) So all of these, everything, well, these were big files compared to the tiny amount of bandwidth to get these files online. There was no such thing as high-speed internet. So I developed and invented a way to prevent employees from sending these files to each other and across the internet. Because one of these files is like a pig going through a boa constrictor. It would hit that email server and it would crash. In addition, 
there were viruses called Melissa virus. I love you virus. And these other viruses that back then, all they did was oftentimes you click on a, uh, on a PDF or a file that got sent to you and it would capture your email and blast out that same message to a bunch of people, which would crash the email server because it couldn't handle the load. So I invented a way to prevent that from happening. Well, CNN learned about that, particularly at Christmas time, because I made a press release that said, if you have employees sending these Christmas card gifts to each other, I will offer for free between November 1st and December 31st, block all of those files from being sent, protecting your email system. Well, CNN thought that was awesome. So they had me on to talk about why and how, because it was brand new at the time. Email was a brand new thing. Now it's so ancient that, Charlie, do you even have an email account? <laughs> right? I mean, it's just like, yeah, well, go ahead. Quick, quick question. So you gave away that. I did. I free. gave it away for free. Why? A couple of reasons okay. why. Because after December 31st, I'm going to charge you for it. Or you can turn it off. Well, most companies are like, okay. And I made the price point so ridiculously easy. And back then they did not have a way of doing this on their own, but I had developed this and it was a huge boost to our revenue, a huge boost to our income and a huge boost to my reputation because I'm on CNN. So much so that about three months later, the email viruses started hitting and taking down Ford Motor Company and Boeing and IBM. And so CNN needs to do a story on this. Who in the world can they call that can tell them about email and viruses and things like that? Richard, can we send up a camera crew? I was living in Dayton, Ohio at the time and put you on CNN again. Sure. So CNN's in my office. They're recording me. And my receptionist interrupts the recording and says, hey, CBS is on the line. They want to talk to you. I said, tell them I'll call them back. <laughs> and the CNN crew says, oh, I, I think it was CBS. They said, oh, that's our local affiliate. We'll make sure we get our footage to them after we come up. So I was like, I'm the hero. So this idea of oftentimes giving away value when you're trying to do something, I call it give before asking. I started a pod, my own podcast that ran for 10 years, teaching people how to use Kickstarter. Well, Again, how did I become so well-known for that? It comes down to understanding if you give to your audience first and to the community, after a time, it'll be time for the community to give back. The first time I meet you, and this, I gave this advice, Charlie, just a few minutes ago with somebody who was doing a Kickstarter campaign. I said, what have you done beforehand? They said, well, no, I'm starting the Kickstarter campaign now to build awareness. I said, that's the last thing you should do. The first time I hear from you should not be you asking me for something. So you should be giving to the community, giving to your audience. You're doing it now. The time's going to come, Charlie, where you're going to ask somebody for of something. Hey, you were on my podcast. Hey, I was doing this. Or you're even the own community that's listening. And you've been giving to that community for free that when the time comes, the community often gives back for free. And that's the lesson that I've, I wrote another book called Stealing the Show. I wrote it 10, 12 years ago about using this technique. If you're a nobody and you have no money and no presence, here are certain things you can do to jump out ahead of your competition and steal the show. Well, I think that principle of just giving away value for free and not asking for anything in return is applicable in any industry, really, and not just the entrepreneurial space. How many times have you been asked, how are you going to monetize your podcast? Have you been asked that? A few people have gone like, oh, when are you going to start making money from this? When are you- right. And I've, I got asked that 
all the time on my podcast. Oh, when are you going to monetize it? How are you going to make money? It's like, you know, that's not the first thing I should be worrying about. The first thing is, can I build value to a community and consistently give to that community? And then oftentimes the monetization finds its own way to you, right? You don't have to worry about that. But those people who start off with the money question are starting it from the wrong end of the conversation. For sure. So I'd love to just talk about your new book, Digital First Leadership. I'd love to dive into that for a bit. Sure. So in your book, you emphasize that your online reputation doesn't follow you. You follow it. Could you elaborate on how this concept is particularly relevant in today's digital landscape? Yeah, I use the example in the book of the presidential election of uh, Bloomberg, who was running for president, former mayor of New York, and that he spent billions of dollars to get into the presidential race. And he was climbing in the And then what happened was he got on stage and we all saw him in the debates and he was terrible. He just dialed it in. He wasn't prepared. He was condescending, a little bit arrogant. None of this polished business problem solver that we saw in his ads and online was evident. And this is what I mean is that his, his online identity did not match up with his real world identity. If you're going to be authentic and online, you can get away with fooling people for a while, but after a while, people start to figure it out and that authenticity starts to break down and then it all comes crashing down in a hurry. And we're seeing more and more of that with people, um, particularly in the influencer, right? They're standing in front of their Mercedes or their, oh, excuse me, Lamborghini. They wouldn't just, right well that's just i wouldn't even touch that car (laughs) right or they're in some some place where it's important and we're seeing it more and more that as soon as there's a crack in the facade of the authenticity of what we've been seeing the followers abandon because they sniff it out so you can get away with it for a little while and that's why i argue look your online identity is how you um, present yourself it now is building the reputation. You need to make sure physical or in-person identity follows along. You can't just fake it and put it out there. And it drives me nuts seeing just how fakey so many of these people are, especially with Photoshop, where you can see that they've Photoshopped the image or the green screen. It's just like, why? Anyway, so that's, that's one of the things I talk about in the book. Well, Tom Singer, actually, he mentioned that the idea of fake it till you make it is not a great idea because when we fake it till we make it, we are not being ourselves and we're not being our authentic selves and we're not making the genuine connections that we need to make in order to succeed in any endeavor. So just piggybacking on that with and corroborating that with Tom's amazing advice. Fake it till you make it. It means internally internally ignore the fears that say i'm a poser that i'm a uh, that i'm not legit here that's the part that people have twisted that meaning fake it till you make fake the inside talk yourself into the confidence i have a right to be here i have a why would richard bliss be willing to talk to me because because i'm i'm worth it that's the faking inside and that's what people struggle with sometimes. And so then they project it externally and that the fake, that's where it doesn't work. And so fake it till you make it means overcome those doubts, those fears, and just push through. And Tom's the great example because he talks about overcoming his fear of public speaking, overcoming him putting himself out there as a stand-up comic. Um, he's a great personality. And yet he, he pushed through those doubts and fears. And so, yeah, let's remember that it's about talking yourself out of your own doubts. I want to jump into another question 
which is the term yeah. digital first leadership suggests sort of a shift in the traditional leadership paradigms. What key attributes or skills do leaders need to develop to successfully navigate this new era of leadership? Predictable, persistent presence. I call them the three P's, predictable, persistent presence. They need to understand that they need to be out there on a regular basis, predictable, every Tuesday or once a month or something regular. I had a client uh, of a multi-billion dollar company, a CEO, who wanted to have a statement about something that had been the government that they disagreed with. The problem was this executive had never said anything about anything online ever. And I had to explain to them that it's a little disingenuous for you to jump out there now and have something to say when you've never participated in any of the conversations that were happening beforehand. So predictable, persistent, over time, over time, demonstrate that you have been here for a while and have a right to participate in this conversation. You can't just helicopter in and say, oh, I'm here now. I guess we can start the conversation. No, it's been going on for a while. Presence. I should see you showing up in a multiple of places on podcasts, on blogs, on LinkedIn, on other social media platforms, other people quoting you. I should see you have a presence that gives me social proof points that you're relevant in this conversation. And for a lot of leaders today, this is a major shift because they're busy heads down running their company. But I just watched an excellent um, talk by an individual by the name of Scott Galloway. I highly recommend him. Scott is a NYU professor, public speaker, uh, VC, venture capitalist kind of guy. And he said that the number one skill for CEOs today is storytelling. Because what's happened is with all the noise and everything that's going on, it's the narrative that's become much more important than the numbers themselves. When you look at a company and its ability and its earning and everything, okay, there might be some doubts, but can this leader explain to us in an aspirational way why we should stick with him? Jeff Bezos. Jeff, for years, you can Google this. He's all over. He was losing money. On a regular basis, their company lost money. And people struggled with it. But he consistently stayed with the fact that he believed back when his company kept losing money, losing money, losing money, because they kept taking that profits and putting it right back into the company. Well, now that's pretty obvious. And so <laughs> Good for, decision. Good decision. <laughs> for leaders today, they have to recognize that they have to be persistent in a way that over time, they indicates that they have a vested interest in participating in the conversations that are happening online around topics that they want to be known for, whether that's immigration, whether that's gun control, whether that's climate activists, whether that's SEC rulings on profits, whether that's on AI, they have to start now participating in the conversation. And you can start now, right? It's not that once you achieve success, then you need to start doing this. This is something that is actionable that you need to start. You start doing. right now. I had a CEO who was is really passionate about gun violence. Now that's a hot topic. I just lost uh, my nephew to suicide by gun uh, last week. And it's something that I'm very, very pa passionate about. I was in Mandalay Bay the night of the shooting where so many people died at the hands of, uh, and I've lost family members to gun violence and I've been witness to it. Now I've been in the military for many years. So this is a topic that's very important to me. Well, this CEO wanted, was important to him as well. The challenge is 
how can we talk about it without it being a, a, uh, a political statement? So in his case, what we did is we started to create content that was not focused on the guns and the violence, but started to talk about it in a more general term, allowing him to participate in the conversation gently little by little so that it could lead up to when he wanted something to, important to say and make a statement about that. And so that's something to, th to think about there. These are topics that if we want to participate in the conversation as a CEO, you've got to be out there already talking about issues like this, or as Tom Singer is making yourself vulnerable, putting yourself out there, even though your opinions might be different from many of the people who are listening or engaging with you, including your own employees sometimes. So if you were to give a TED talk, let's say this is a 10 minute TED talk and you have five minutes to prepare, what what would you talk about and why would you talk about it? It's a great question. And so one of the things I would talk about is in today's world is that what we've discussed here on the podcast, I would stand up and explain to the audience that as our world is now controlled so much by AI and algorithms, that understanding how these algorithms apply to us, understanding and opening the curtain gives us some power over that. Being aware of the why and the how that they're influencing us. AI and algorithms can work for your positive and for the negative. And so my TED talk, that if I was to deliver it, the 18 minutes that I would have is going to help people understand some of the very things that you and I have talked about on this podcast. Here's how it works. Here's its goals. Here's what it's trying to do. And here's how you can take steps to take control, not of the algorithm or the AI, but to actually use it in your life in such a way to drive and be part of an active conversation around that. And so that's one of the things that I would talk about. Okay. Second, are there any questions that you ask yourself or ask your clients often that help them think in terms of what they need to be doing? Do you ask them what's their purpose or what's their goal or what are they trying to achieve? Because when I come and talk to them, I had, again, I was on the call just a few minutes before this one, and I had to stop the individual and say, what is your goal? Particularly because I talk about LinkedIn and online. What's your goal? He really struggled with it. And so by asking them to focus and tell me, describe to me who you're selling to. Describe to me who you're trying to influence. My team that works for me, we call this Brenda. Talk to Brenda. Who's Brenda? Well, Brenda is a sales enablement person who's been in their career for two or three years at this job. They have a sales team of this, right? Break this individual down so that you can talk to them and know the problem that they have that you're trying to solve. Because if you're trying to talk to everybody, nobody's listening. Yeah, for sure. And last question. All right, you have this billboard that millions of people can see. And I, I don't know if you've had this question asked to you before, but if you could put one phrase, one quote, one idea on this billboard, millions of people can see it, what would it be and why would it be that? Your inability to master a 21st century communication tool calls into question your ability to lead a 21st century organization. That quote is what I coined when I spoke to a senior leader who was responsible for $4 billion of annual revenue for his company. And he said, why do I need to be on social media? And that's what I said. And I'll repeat it here for you. Your inability to master a 21st century communication tool calls into question your ability to lead a 21st century organization. Charlie, you're, you've, you're a digital native. You've grown up with these tools around you. If you went to work for someone who couldn't quite understand what a hashtag was, 
does that call into question just a little bit of their ability to understand how business works today? A little bit, for sure. And More for than sure. a little bit. And so, yeah. but I get asked that question all the time. So tell me of the hashtag. How do you use that? What's it do? My point here is that billboard statement is, look, as leaders, you might not think you need these tools, but the people you're leading are judging you based on your mastery of how you use these communication tools in today's world. If we go back to the phone call, they call you up and leave a voicemail. Who in the world listens to a voicemail? Or they try to send a fax, right? My point is, is that you're in it. Today's modern communication tools are social media and particularly LinkedIn. If you cannot have the ability to master that, then you are calling into question your ability to, to lead an organization in today's world that, that relies on these tools. And so that's the quote. You want me to say it one more time? Yes, please. Your inability to master a 21st century communication tool calls into question your ability to lead a 21st century organization. Well, I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to talking with you in the future. Charlie, this has been great. Thank you for having me on the show.